let's take our Bibles and turn uh, back to the book of Joshua. Book of Joshua this morning, we're in chapter 5. You know, in 29 years of ministry, I've probably never had a more awkward topic for a message. But uh, i got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to this study because I believe the Holy Spirit is a very uh, clear word for us this morning. Tony mentioned that phrase, skin in the game, and um, that was a, a, a term that was coined by Warren Buffett, who is a billionaire, and he termed it uh, to refer to a situation in which high-ragging insiders in a company use their own money to buy company stock, um, so, so they're investing into their own company. And in broader terms, uh, that phrase, skin in the game, uh, really means to put yourself on the line. It means to invest something that you uh, have in something you believe in and to sacrifice because you know that it's right. And while Mr. Buffett is a very wise businessman and probably um, believes he invented that term, when I was planning this series and got to chapter 5, I realized that um, Skin in the Game was going to be the title of this message because the Lord is the one who created the concept. The Lord is the one who created the concept when he reinstituted circumcision uh, in this text. Now, I don't want to be too graphic this morning with, with the literal and spiritual parallels, and I even asked a couple of the leaders, do you think that title is too provocative? Uh, and they kind of laughed at me and said, I don't know. So I went with it. Um, and after studying, I, I felt very strongly that, um, that that's what we needed to talk about this morning. So let's get right into the text, because time is short. Uh, chapter 5 of the book of Joshua, let's read verses 1 to 7. It came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, so encompassing the, the whole area from Jericho all the way over to the Mediterranean, when they heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised then. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom he raised up in their place Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now, verse 1 should remind us of last week's study where we learned that when we spread the gospel and when we minister with boldness and with confidence of victory, like Tony just talked about, that hearts will melt before the Lord. That, that when we do the job that God's assigned us to do, that He will work. But so much of the hesitancy that we have in doing that is born out of some level of fear. And I thought that skit depicted it very well. Fear of intruding, fear of offending, fear of seeming extreme, 
uh, fear of insecurity of what am I going to say and, and not knowing what to do. And, and it said it well, fear of getting out of our comfort zone. And because of the spiritual decline in our culture and because of the increased spiritual resistance in our culture, um, that opposition becomes very strong viscerally to us and we may be a little bit hesitant and a little bit intimidated uh, to do what we've been called to do. You know, I was listening to a, to a political commentator on Sunday, not on Sunday, during the week, and he said that in, in the wake of President Trump's victory, and I'm, I'm, this is not a political statement, I'm just telling you what he said, that, that much of the left is so um, still dumbfounded by what happened and can't figure out what went wrong, and, and they're bothered their agenda is not being supported at the top. So they've made a decision, one faction of our culture has made a decision, that they are just going to impose what they want. And what they're imposing at this point really is what goes against the Word of God and what stands as an affront to the Lord. And that's not because of politics. Let's not uh, be unwise what we're watching. What we're watching is not a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. And the enemy is so wanting to be ingrained in the culture, and unfortunately he's having success. And I thought, as I listened to that commentator as I was driving along, I thought, why aren't Christians imposing what they want? Why isn't the church demanding what is right and what is biblical? And the fact that we haven't had a lot of success in that, and, and really, if we're going to be honest, feel pretty pessimistic that we could, shows that a lack of biblical conviction and a lack of spiritual maturity and a lack of spiritual clarity, clarity has, has really combined to render Christianity pretty powerless. Now, I don't say that with any joy. I say that with discouragement. So we know the atmosphere of the culture, and maybe we don't feel ready to be bold, and maybe we're still dealing with a substantial sense of, of hesitation and fear, and that's realistic until we realize who we're talking about, and until we realize what we're talking about and who's empowering us. Last week, we sang a line, for every fear, there's an empty grave. And that empty grave is what we want to tell people about. We want to tell people about Jesus Christ. We want to tell people about his death and his resurrection. We want to tell people what that means for them. And in doing that, please hear this, because we just saw it personified on this platform. When we do that, we need to remember that the enemy is powerless against the Lord. The enemy is powerless against the Lord, and he is thoroughly and eternally defeated. So when God's people take a stand, and when God's people go out and tell people God loves you, their heart, the Bible tells us, will be softened by the Holy Spirit. So we have to trust the Spirit, and we have to be empowered and emboldened by the Spirit so we can go do the work of the apostles. Now, what is required for that? Well, that's where we get to verses 2 to 7, because in verses 2 to 7, Israel reinstitutes this act of circumcision. Now, that practice was first established in Genesis 17 when God said to Abraham, Circumcise yourself and your household as an everlasting covenant in your flesh. In other words, you're going to feel this because I'm making a covenant with you that you're supposed to be set apart to me. 
Paul tells us in Galatians that we as Christians are not under that covenant. We're under the new covenant in Christ. But we're going to see in a couple minutes what Paul teaches us about the concept of circumcision as it relates to us. But go back to the text for a minute because it says that all the circumcised men who left Egypt died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. We know that. And notice why God says this happened. He says, because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Let, that, let those words, they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Let that settle in for a minute. Because as I studied that this week, I thought, how many times have I not listened to the voice of the Lord? It may be subtle or it may be intentional. We may not think it's, it's on purpose, but it really is on purpose. And then the Lord just flooded my heart and my mind with a bunch of statements that he makes where he calls us to obedience. And he said to me, and I'm saying now to you, analyze how consistently you obey what I tell you. Let me just give you some of the phrases. Call on me and I will answer. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no want in those who fear him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. How well do we obey? Put off the old man of sin and put on the new man of righteousness. Clothe yourself with righteousness and humility. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Think only on what is true and honorable and right and pure and worthy of praise. Forgive as I've forgiven you. Be filled with the Spirit. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, putting on the full armor of God. Go into the world and preach the gospel, making disciples. These are not helpful suggestions. Like, it would be great if you could just do this. These are direct commands. And maybe our passive lack of obedience and kind of, uh, if I can use the term, kind of subtle insubordination is because we love the Lord as our Savior, but we don't necessarily see Him as our Lord. You know, I didn't serve in the military, but I do know that when your commanding officer gives you a direct command, you don't ignore it. And you don't shrug it off and you don't say, well, you know what, I'll get to that later. That sounds, that sounds really helpful, commanding officer. I, I think, you know, let me take that under some consideration and, and get back to you on that. Uh, anybody in, was in the military? It doesn't work that way, right? And yet how often do we hear the words of our commanding officer, our Lord, and say, mm, not right now. Maybe later. I, I might get to that. I don't know. I'll think about it. The Spirit says in verse 6, the problem was they didn't listen. Even though the Lord had promised them five things, deliverance, freedom, possession, victory, and contentment. You know, probably the biggest difficulty or sadness any pastor experiences is not the long hours and it's not seeing friends turn away and leave and it's not people divorcing and people dying and it's not unnecessary power struggles it's not even discerning the will and leading of the lord those are all difficult those are all discouraging those are all uh, there but they're not enough to lead you away from your calling 
but, but what is causing 1,800 pastors to leave ministry every month? 1,800 every month. That's 60 today. It's not tight budgets. It's not too many meetings. It's watching people who hear the Bible being taught and knowing the truth resist it and not listening to the word of the Lord. I'm not talking about our sermons. We know better than that. We know that, that that's not what has value. It's about not submitting to the conviction of the Holy Spirit through his word, to not change when the Spirit confronts us with his word that's designed to incite life change. You know, just on Sunday mornings, not including prayer meeting, Bible studies, family camp messages, as of today, this is, as the pastor of this church, message number 345. And I always wonder, as I think about that every week, how much have we changed and matured because of that? Now, I don't imagine myself to be some great preacher, but just hearing God's word 345 times, just being exposed to the Spirit 345 times should have a great impact on every single one of us, including me. And as I talk to other pastors and I look back over three decades of ministry, there's nothing worse in my mind than seeing people slip away from the Lord or just stay stagnant and dull dealing with the same things year after year, the same problems, the same sins year after year. That lack of change, that lack of movement is the real crisis in the American church. And with the Israelites, the Spirit says to them, here's why. It's because you didn't listen. This was their chronic downfall. Listen carefully now. They were not invested. Instead of listening to the Lord, instead of obeying, they were dull and dissatisfied. They didn't move one inch spiritually. So when they walk in circles year after year after year in the desert, that's kind of a microcosmic picture of where they are spiritually. There's no progress. There's no moving forward. There's no investing and taking new ground. Now, what's the picture of your life today? If, if you have to depict it, an image of what my spiritual life is like, what my spiritual attitude is like, what does it look like? Is it a circle? Is it waves going back and forth and back and forth? Is it a balancing beam? Is it a line that's steadily kind of falling down, moving backwards? Is it, is it a strong line moving forward or is it just nothing? The Israel took 40 days to finish an 11-day trip. And I ask myself and I ask you, does that describe your spiritual progression over the last year? Does that describe your spiritual progression over the last five years? The Lord has promised us exactly the same five things that he did to Israel. He says, I will give you deliverance from sin. I'll give you freedom from bondage. I will give you possession of my nature. I will give you victory eternally over the enemy. I'll give you victory over defeat and discouragement and doubt and, and double-mindedness. And I'll give you contentment, deep abiding peace that you can't understand because it's from me. All of that is only through Christ. It does not happen through our effort. It doesn't happen through intellectualism. It doesn't happen through emotionalism. It doesn't happen through a great job and a nice house and a lot of money and the right relationships. It only happens through Christ. 
So how much is that a reality in our life? Now, go back to the text. The fact that Israel wasn't circumcised in the desert shows that they were not fully engaged and they were not fully invested. So, not to be too blunt, the Lord literally and figuratively calls them to put some skin in the game. So he takes the men, because it always starts with the men, men. It starts with the men. He takes the men, and he takes what is precious to them, and he refines it and he reshapes it. Now, this is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to take our heart, and he wants to refine it and reshape it. Because this was not a physical act. This was a spiritual act. And if there's going to be skin in the game, that is going to require sacrifice and pain. Now, don't lose me. Because the American church now doesn't want to hear the words sacrifice and pain. It wants to hear happy and easy and just make my life good and give me my little message and then I can go do my own thing. I praise the Lord. I don't believe we're like that, but we got to be careful. If you're going to save money for the future, what do you do? You have to sacrifice, right? You have to experience some self-denial. You have to have some personal pain in the short term for the purpose of joy in the long term. And here's the problem. We live in an instant gratification culture. But there's also a dichotomy of thought about this concept that really hit me this week. On one hand, the mindset of our culture is no limits. Don't, I don't want to be denied anything I want. I don't want you to tell me what I can and can't do. I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want. So if you or some company or somebody else tries to, tries to establish some kind of standard that I don't like, I'm going to push back on it. If you want evidence of this, just watch a football game today. It's all over the college campuses. Now, students are telling professors, we don't want to take exams. We're tired. We're stressed. You think you're in college. Maybe stop partying so much and study. But no, we don't want to take finals. We're, we're offended by something somebody said, and, and you can't tell us what to do. You're going to college to study and prepare, but, but people aren't doing that anymore. So now they're saying, we don't want to do what we don't want to do. Yet at the same time, certain factions of the culture are establishing that if you disagree with us, you can't do what you want to do. And the irony of that is completely lost on society. So let me give you a truth that's very important. The Lord can and will tell us what to do. The Lord can and will tell us what to do. Now, as believers, that's our default. Though the enemy is using the culture to tell us that that's unreasonable of the Lord. And, and, and that, that God can't do that. And we might buy into that until we remember the investment that God made for us. I can't, as a believer, complain about sacrifice and self-denial and pain when I look at the cross of Jesus Christ. I can't say, well, it's too much, Lord, and, 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 and you're demanding self-sacrifice, but, but I can't do that. But, but then I look at the cross and I go, well, how can I argue? And then I look at the empty tomb, and that means victory and new life and possession. 
Bible says we're bought with the price of Christ's blood and he is our Lord and he can, has every right to tell us exactly what to do. Thank him, he is gracious and he's not overbearing and he's not a taskmaster. But by his word and by his spirit, he knows exactly what is right for us and we are called and commissioned and have the joyful privilege to live by his word and by his will. And we as redeemed believers need to know there's no better way to live. So skin in the game, that phrase applies to everything we are as redeemed children of God. Not, not just, let me be careful here, not just our spiritual walk. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a little tired of that term. Because it, it kind of alludes to the fact that there's this compartmentalization of who we are spiritually. That that's, that's just a part of our life. But how many know spiritual life is your whole life? It's, it's not just, well, I do my spiritual life over here, and I do my work over here, and I do my family over here, and I do my hobbies over here, and I do my sports over here, and I do my whatever over here, but, but I've got my spiritual walk. No, your spiritual walk is everything. Everything falls under the Spirit's control. Everything is surrendered to the Lord for the purpose of life and godliness. Everything is subject to His will, His power, His control, and His glory. Because we're bought. We're purchased. And instead of that being a source of discomfort and resentment, it needs to be a point of joy. So our choice in life is whether we're going to live fully for the Lord or for ourselves. Trying to exist in the middle is, is not an option. And the Lord says that attempted equivocation kind of disgusts me. It, it makes me sick. So he says there has to be skin in the game. Now hold your place here. Run over to Romans chapter 2 just for a minute. Because I want us to see what Paul says about this in Romans. Romans 2.29, which we read in a second, it echoes Deuteronomy 30. This is how Scripture works. As a former Pharisee, Paul knew Deuteronomy 30 very well. He knew when God instituted the concept of, of circumcision and what God said about it, that it wasn't just a physical act. And he repeats that here in Romans 2.29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise, speaking of the one who circumcised in his heart, is not from men, but from God. Read it again. He who is a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. What's Paul saying? He's saying that our hearts need to be circumcised, which means that just like Israel was physically circumcised to show a spiritual investment, to show separation to God, he now says our hearts inwardly need to be circumcised, that the old needs to be cut away so that we're pure and separated to the Lord. Now he says in the verses leading up to this, you can go back to verse 25 and kind of browse it, he says that Jewish circumcision was only an outward sign. Because it didn't matter if you were physically circumcised if your heart was sinful. That essentially renders the physical circumcision as nothing. He says a circumcised body and a sinful heart are at odds with each other. 
So Paul says what has to happen is that our heart, the metaphor here, needs to be circumcised. It needs to be cut and sacrificed so that the Holy Spirit will set us apart to God. Physical circumcision cannot make us right with God because the law isn't enough. Our heart has to be changed. And because Christ has dramatically changed our hearts, now our pride is sacrificed, our will is sacrificed, our our self is sacrificed as an investment to Christ. It's a beautiful picture. You know, when I was planning this series, I, I... really was thinking outreach and taking new ground and all that. But as I, as I looked more and more at this text, especially chapter 5 of Joshua, I became very convinced that the Spirit was speaking about our lives. Because we can't tell other people about Christ until we are invested fully in our walk. So the question is, are you invested in, in your new life and in being like Christ? And are you invested in maturing so that it encompasses your whole life? And are you invested in being part of this church community and then going out into that community and reaching people for Christ? Are you invested in serving the Lord with the unique gifts that he's given you. You know, we've had, we've had lots of time. We've had 345 messages to be impacted by the word. Now it's time for us to act. God's given us a building, and he says, I want you to invest into it, and I want you to renovate it. And that's going to mean personal sacrifice, and it's going to mean financial sacrifice. We're not just doing it so we can go, wow, look at our wonderful building. It's so perfect and new we're doing it because we want to utilize it and make it better to minister to people and to reach people who come here and help disciple them without distraction that's why we're doing this initiative now notice one more thing at the risk of time we're good verses 8 to 15 there's one final set of truths back in joshua sorry you were in romans you were being nice to turn so go back to joshua 5 for a minute And notice one final set of truths and applications that are in this section. I kind of, when I initially read this thought, it's kind of superfluous, but it really wasn't because as I read through it, the Spirit said, there's a lot of importance here. I didn't put this in here by accident. So look at what happens in verse 8. When they finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. When the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on that day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. So the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Came about when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What does the Lord say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Real quick, look at a couple details here. Detail number one is in verse 10. 
They camped at Gilgal. Now we know from last week's study that Gilgal is where they had set up the 12 memorial stones that they pulled out of the dry ground of the Jordan River. But the meaning of Gilgal is important because the word means rolling. And uh, the Lord describes it to them and says, Today, Gilgal, I have rolled away the reproach of Israel from you. In other words, the, the stain of slavery and the scent of Egypt and the stigma of their past and their rebellion. Now that's being replaced. There's, there's a new life now. There's a new reality. There's new ground that you need to take because I have removed all that junk and I'm now delivering you and giving you the fulfillment of my promise. Now the spiritual parallel for us is obvious. As a believer, the memory of sin is gone. The stigma of our past is replaced by a new reality, a new life that's marked by righteousness and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So if God is willing to remove the reproach of Paul Rhodes' past, then why would I ever go back to it and get that scent on me again? He's removed it. Gilgal was not an accident. He says, today, right now, I'm removing it. Then notice detail number two in verse 10. It says they celebrated Passover. And look at how the Spirit gives detail. He says it was the 14th day of the month. Who cares, right? Well, it's a very important detail because it is 40 years to the day from the first Passover. God always keeps his word, right? 40 years to the day when the parents slit the throat of the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and sat back and waited as they're in slavery thinking God's about to release us and they follow Moses' instructions and they sit in the room and they eat the lamb and they huddle together as a family and the whales of Egypt all go out as the firstborn in every Egyptian house dies as the angel passes over and they sit there in safety and look at each other and say, the Lord is good. 40 years to the day they get to the they get to the promised land and God says remember remember what I have done remember how I saved you out of an inescapable situation every time you look at the cross every time you see Jesus know that God has escaped us out of an inescapable situation and he's done it for all eternity so they're at Gilgal. Their reproach is rolled away. They're celebrating the Passover, thinking about salvation. Third detail, verse 11, they ate some of the produce of the land. Now for Israel, that was a reminder that they had had no food in Egypt. And in the desert, they had had to provide, they had had to trust the manna being provided every day. But the moment they eat of the produce of the land where God had promised them, now the manna stops because God says, I provided for you when you didn't have. Now I've taken you into the land that I promised you where you do have. Now you eat of that. Same concept spiritually. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life and I'm going to give you spiritual food every day. You know in the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. God, every day, providing faithfully, day after day after day, far above what we could ever ask or think. Last detail, verses 13 to 15. An angel comes, and he appears to reinforce God's leading and God's power 
He says to Joshua, I'm on your side. God's provided. God's brought you here. Victory is ahead. Now you need to realize that you're on holy ground. Why was it holy ground? Because it was Canaan? Because it was near Jericho? No, it was holy ground because it was God's ground. And he had told them in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, consecrate yourselves, prepare to take new ground. Listen, for us as believers, and especially as a church, this is a new day. And I am convinced that victory is ahead of us in the form of people being reached with the gospel, in form of people coming to Christ, in the form of people being discipled here at this church, and the form of people being part of this body. This right here is holy ground that God has consecrated for us. Why? Because it's his ground. This is his church. This is his building. This is his 3.8 acres. This is his place. 1015 Four Mile Road, Racine, Wisconsin. That's God's. He's just letting us use it. And he says, now, there are people all around you that need my gospel. Now, consecrate yourselves because the fields are white and there's a harvest that's ready. It's time to take new ground. So church, believer, we need to push back against the evil pervading our culture. We need to push back against the problems in southeast Wisconsin that are ripping the city apart. We need to speak truth and give hope to people because they're hungry for it. And that requires skin in the game that requires personal sacrifice which we should be used to because every day we're supposed to be dying to self as disciples of Christ it'll mean financial sacrifice but listen we can easily do this and it will require a sacrifice and maybe this is the hardest one of our comfort and our time and our effort but when we think about what Christ has done for us, how could we ever hesitate? With sacrifice, there's always a reward. And he says, when you diligently seek me, I will reward you. So it is time to put skin in the game and to get busy for the Lord. Let's ask him to help us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the calling that you've put on our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your love. Lord, we say those words so easily, but when we really think about what is required and what you have done just because you're gracious, Oh, Lord, I pray right now we'd be overwhelmed by that. I pray you would remove any shred of dullness or apathy or indifference. Lord, that we'd be all in, that it would be everything, that, that you would be everything in our lives, not just a little segment. Lord, forgive us for that. We don't want to compartmentalize you. You're our life. I pray right now, Lord, you'd move through this room. You'd move through every heart, including my own. You would reshape, reconfigure our thinking. You would cut away what is not pleasing to you. 
you would strip us, Lord, of our pride and our self-sufficiency and stubbornness and sin. And Father, that you would purify us again as we consecrate ourselves before you. Lord, I, I just, I pray you'd work right now. I, I just sense, Lord, a, a resistance. Maybe it's the enemy fighting back, but I just pray you'd break that right now. There is so much opportunity that you've put before us. Not only to reach the neighborhood, Lord, but just to be a spiritual influence. Just to, just to impact the lives of those people that we come in contact with every day. Neighbors, co-workers, friends, family members. Lord, I pray that we would understand the impact that we can have and that we would embrace it. We ask for your help, Lord, because you know we're intimidated. You know we're scared. You know we're hesitant. You know we don't feel ready. But Lord, we pray you'd empower us by your spirit, that you'd help us. And that we would begin to see the fruit of the harvest. Lives being changed. People experiencing the joy of salvation people growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we will exalt you and praise you for that. Now we pray you'd help us as individuals, as a church, to be bold, to be strong and courageous, and have hearts that are circumcised before you so we will be holy and set apart. Help us, Lord. Help us. And we will serve you all the days of our life. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.